so now then, the section that we've reached in Bahjat Qulub al-Abrar is the section where there are going to be several ahadith on a different chapter or different subject. And it is the chapter and the subject of fiqh. So now, we will come across several narrations regarding rulings of fiqh in purification, in prayer, in other affairs relating to those topics. The first hadith then is the hadith of Abu Hurairah رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يقبل الله صلاة أحدكم إذا أحدث حتى يتوضأ متفق عليه this hadith of Abu Hurairah رضي الله عنه that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said Allah does not accept the prayer of one of you if your wudu breaks until you go and make wudu. So your prayer is not accepted by Allah if your wudu has broken until you go and make the wudu again first, then pray. So this hadith basically is teaching us one of the conditions of the prayer, min shurut sihhati salah, from the conditions of the acceptability of the prayer, from the conditions of the validity of the prayer. One of those is, of course, purification. Purification is a prerequisite, a condition for the prayer. This hadith therefore indicates يَدُلُّ الْحَدِيثِ بِمَنْطُوقِهِ أَنَّ مَنْ لَمْ يَتَوَضَّأْ إِذَا أَحْدَثَ فَصَلَاتُهُ غَيْرُ مَقْبُولَةِ That a person who doesn't make wudu, prays without wudu, then his prayer will not be acceptable. It will not be valid. It will not be accepted. And that's why the scholars, they say, if a person made wudu and started praying properly, but during the prayer, in the middle of the prayer, his wudu breaks. So what does that person have to do now? Break his prayer and do what? And go make wudu again. Is he allowed just to carry on the prayer to the end, then go and make wudu and start again? It is impermissible to carry on praying. 
It is impermissible to carry on praying if your wudu breaks in the middle of the prayer. Some scholars say it is even a sin because it is like you are mocking the rulings of the religion. The ruling of the religion tells you very clearly you need to have wudu to pray. So if your wudu now breaks in the middle of the prayer and you carry on praying without wudu, then it is as if you are belittling this rule, belittling this revelation that you need to have wudu. So if your wudu breaks in the middle of the prayer, it is not allowed to carry on. Rather you cut your prayer where it is and go and make your wudu again. Then return and pray from where you left off or from the beginning. Imagine your wudu broke after two raka'at. So you cut the prayer after the second raka'ah and went and made the wudu and came back. Do you carry on from the third raka'ah onwards or you gotta begin from the beginning? From the beginning. If your wudu breaks like that and you go and repeat it, then you come back, you must begin from the beginning. That is one of the conditions for the validity of the prayer. To have purification when you pray. Who can tell us some of the other conditions of the prayer? For the prayer to be valid, the shurutu salah. One of them is tahara. Another one, the time, duhulul waqt. That the time has to have entered for you to be able to pray. You cannot pray a prayer before the time starts for that prayer. If you pray a prayer before the time starts for that prayer, then it is invalid. You need to pray it again after the time has begun. What else? The niyyah, the intention. What else? Should be? Saying, those are prerequisites generally for any worship. For the prayer particularly, some other conditions of the prayer. To face the Qibla. That is another one. To face the Qibla. The entry of the time, facing the Qibla, purification. What are the conditions? The Awrah. The awrah of a person needs to be covered during the prayer. For the women, that's the whole of the body with the exception of the face and the hands. For the men, as a bare minimum for acceptability between the navel and the knees. But of course, it should be more than that. What else? Conditions of the prayer. They are arkan, conditions of the prayer. Another one is purification, but a different type of purification. Which type? The place where you are praying needs to be pure. 
Your clothes need to be pure and your body needs to be pure. These are all various conditions for the validity of the prayer. What is the, the definition of what a condition is? It is something which needs to be in place before you actually start the prayer. And it must remain in place throughout the prayer. So you need to be upon wudu after you start the prayer or before the prayer. Before the prayer. And you need to continue to be upon that state of wudu throughout till the end of the prayer. That is a condition. Something which needs to begin before the prayer and must continue all the way to the end of the prayer. Facing the qibla. You start facing the qibla after you begin or before you begin the prayer. Before you begin the prayer and you got to carry on facing it until the end of the prayer. The only exception to that is the supererogatory prayers. The supererogatory prayers, the Prophet ﷺ used to pray on his camel and the camel would turn around in different directions and he would carry on praying. Supererogatory prayers only. The fard prayers facing the qibla all throughout. So these are conditions of the prayer generally. This hadith here spoke about in particular the condition regarding the wudu, the purification that a person needs to be upon. Huh. How accurate does you have to be facing the qibla? The accuracy of facing the qibla. How accurate do you need to be in facing the qibla? So then, the organizers of the mosque, one or two can be seen here, can tell us how accurate is this masjid? Are we exactly at one, one, eight point, whatever the compass is from here? Does it need to be like that? It doesn't. It is a mistake when people think you have to pray at the exact point, 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 something on the compass. They give you all the directions on the compass, whatever it is, 118 degrees or something, whatever that degrees is from the UK. And then people will measure it, and it's just at that 118.2567. That's where you have to pray. Not necessarily. It doesn't have to be like that. As long as, in fact, the way the scholars explain it, if you are in the haram, you are in front of the Kaaba, in the haram right there in the middle. How accurate do you have to face the Qibla? If you're right there, think about this as we go out. We're going to zoom out. Right now, you are there at the Kaaba in the haram right there. How accurate do you have to face it? Now you need to be point, 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 point. Not even point, point, you have to be exact. If you are in the haram, in front of the Kaaba, you must be facing the Kaaba exact. You can't just be stood, let's say the Kaaba is where the doors are, you can't be stood at a direction whereby, if you go straight forward, half of your body is touching the Kaaba, the other half is going past it. Shouldn't be. You should now be stood so that your whole body is exactly at the Kaaba. That is if you are there in front of it. Zoom out slightly. 
You're now still in Al-Masjid Al-Haram. But now you're in, how big it is these days too, you've seen it. There are many parts, you can be in the mosque and you won't be able to see the Kaaba. You can be in the mosque in many parts of it now. The size of it, how it's expanded. You can be inside and not be able to see the Kaaba. So where do you have to face? Not general, but specific. The specific direction. Meaning on the floor, it's easy anyway, the way it's designed. The marble on the floor of the masjid, all of it, all, all of it faces towards the Kaaba. You look down those purple slabs, they're all, they're all put down in the exact angle to the Kaaba. So anywhere in the mosque, just look down, wherever the marble is facing, you're facing the Kaaba. So you just face that direction, that is going to the Kaaba. Zoom out a little bit more. Now, you're not facing the Kaaba, that you gotta be exact. You're not in the masjid, you gotta be at the specific direction of it. You're now outside of the mosque in Mecca. Zoomed out a little bit, you're in Mecca. Now where do you have to face? Now the direction you have to face towards is just the direction of the haram. The haram, not even the point, point to the Kaaba. As long as you are in the direction of where the haram is, you're praying in that direction sufficient. It could be that if you were to draw a straight line forward from where you are, you actually maybe even miss the Kaaba. But you've hit the haram sufficient. Zoom out even further, now you're in Medina or some other city in Saudi Arabia. Now you have to face the direction of the haram. Mecca. Mecca basically. The direction of Mecca. Now you're in some other city outside, you're facing the direction of Mecca. Zoom out even further, now you're sat in BD7. BD7, huh? BD7, now what happens? Southeast. So now, the scholars have mentioned, when you're anywhere in the world, your direction is always going to be between two points. If you are in the eastern side of the world, if you're somewhere in the east, then your direction that you got to face is always going to be somewhere between the North and the south. You're in the east of the world. From you, the Kaaba is towards the west. So you're going to be facing somewhere between the north and the south. If you're in the western part of the world, the Kaaba is to your east. So you're still going to be facing somewhere between the north and the south. If you live in the north of the world, the Kaaba is now to your, so your direction is somewhere between east and west. That is what the narrations mention. Meaning from the UK, all you have to do is just the general direction. You don't need the point, point, point facing right to the Kaaba. All you need is the general direction between those poles heading towards the Kaaba. That's all that's required here. That's why the scholars, they say, when you build a mosque, 
And it's probably, Allahu Alam, maybe even in this masjid, it could be the case that the exact point, 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 something compass reading is actually a slight bend. Now we're straight here. If you did the point, point, point on the digital compass, it's probably a slight bend this way or that way. But it doesn't matter. That slight bend this way or that way, it doesn't matter. As long as you are within the poles, into that direction of the Kaaba, into the direction of where it is. So it's a mistake when people talk about getting a compass and you have to work out the exact degree. And if, if you're facing this way and they say, no, you need it to be just slightly that way. That makes no difference. Your prayer is valid. That is regarding the facing of the Kaaba. The next hadith. عن عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عشر من الفطرة حديث of عائشة رضي الله عنها she said that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said ten things are from the natural disposition of a human meaning the ten things that are from the natural types of things that you should do for cleanliness in your body. Ten things that everybody should do as a natural thing for cleanliness and purification and being upon that cleanliness. What are these ten things that are natural things everyone should do? One of them, which applies to the men firstly, قَصُّ sharib. Trimming of the mustache. Trimming the mustache. That is something which is a natural uh, disposition, a natural type of uh, cleanliness. That a person keeps his mustache trimmed. The mustache trimmed. And if you look at all of the narrations, that's what they mention. Letting the beard grow. And trimming the mustache. This is how it is mentioned in the sunnah. So here it mentions in this hadith of Muslim, one of the things that by natural default you should do, keep the mustache trimmed. Then, secondly, اِعْفَاءُ اللِّحْيَةِ Number two, letting the beard grow. إِعْفَاءُ اللِّحْيَةِ Letting the beard grow. That is from the natural characteristics that a person should be upon. And it is sunnah, of course, all of these characteristics. So letting the beard grow, that is something which is required. The beard itself, when we say it is sunnah, doesn't mean it is an option sunnah or a mustahab sunnah. This is a sunnah in terms of the actions but the ruling on it is obligation. For the growing of the beard, the ruling is, it is an obligation. To let the beard grow, clear a hadith in the sunnah, for the Muslim, that is how he should be. There is some difference of opinion amongst the scholars regarding one fistful. So if you take your beard into a fistful, what comes below the fist? Some scholars have an opinion. After you grab a fist from the bottom, below the fist is allowed to be taken off. Some scholars have that opinion. Many of the scholars and what appears to be the majority 
and appears to be the stronger opinion, is that you do not do that, rather you let it grow. As per the wording of this hadith and many other hadith, ifa means to allow it to grow, to let it grow. If you're cutting it after a fist, you're not letting it grow. The wording of the hadith indicates letting it grow. Of course, the scholars do mention, it is allowed to cut the beard if it goes outside of normal boundaries. If it goes outside of normal boundaries, it is allowed to cut. For example, if the beard, normally the beard line will be along the cheek. If somebody had abnormal growth of the beard above the cheek line going up near his eyes, then the fuqaha, they say it would be allowed to take a small amount of this area just below the eye. Because typically that isn't where it grows. Typically most people it stops at the cheek line, but to go above that up near the eyes is abnormal. The fuqaha, they say if anybody has abnormal growth, where it goes beyond and up, then you could take some. You could take some away from the tops because that is abnormal outside of what a beard normally is. This though, these small parts here, that is not abnormal. That is absolutely normal. To have this small growth here is absolutely normal. So it is a mistake when people think it is allowed to make a straight line to get rid of these extra bits near the edges make it nice and straight, it is incorrect. That isn't allowed by the fuqaha. Fuqaha say if it goes abnormal beyond this, this is normal. Beyond this, if it goes here and there and everywhere, you could maybe take some, some of the fuqaha say, due to its abnormality. But otherwise, no. So this is the second thing mentioned, As for anything besides that, besides the fistful, Anything less than that and you're going into territory which is greatly, greatly, maybe disputed isn't the right word, it is practically unacceptable. You're not really going to find any evidence of any substance whatsoever to allow you to cut your beard below a fistful. A fistful passable. With the scholars and the evidence as some of them have mentioned, passable at a fistful. But below that, then it is territory which in reality is not really passable at all. It is a mistake. You hear all of these types of things from the people. They say, I remember at university many years ago here in Manchester, not Medina. There used to be some of the Sufis and they didn't grow their beards. So they used to have stubble. Stubble. He used to say to me, no, no, there's a, an opinion of the fuqaha, which I'm sure you'll find. I'm sure you'll find it. True. There's an opinion of the fuqaha, as long as you can see the stubble from, I forgot the distance he told me, 10 meters or 20 meters, there's a, a quantification. If you can see the stubble of a person from 20 meters, it classes as a beard. All of these types of explanations, you're going to kill yourself before you be able to explain them. There is no reason for it and there is no evidence establishing it. It is at the minimum a fistful if you upon that opinion, but upon the opinion of the scholars generally, allow it to grow. The beard, it is the beautification of a man. It is the beautification of a man. 
As for the one who removes his beard, there is no beautification in that. Now the society makes it beautification. And even society changes. Even in society now, many people, it's fashionable to have a beard. The kuffar, for some of them now, it is fashionable to have these beards. Especially in America and those places you go, beards are fashionable for some of the kuffar. These thobes, they wear them, kuffar, as fashion. So a person doesn't follow the trends and what is occurring. The beard is a beautification of the man. No beard is a beautification of the women. The no beard is a beautification of the women. Having no beard. That is a beautification of women. For the man, beautification is to have your manlyhood. To have the beard. So it is a mistake when a man thinks his beautification is to look like what the beautification of a woman is. Then, as-siwak, number three. Number three, as-siwak. Siwak, the miswak as you call it, using it for the teeth. That is mentioned in one hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, لَوْلَا أَنْ أَشُقَّ عَلَىٰ أُمَّتِي لَأَمَرْتُهُمْ بِالسِّوَاكِ عِنْدَ كُلِّ صَلَاةِ And I think in one riwayah, عِنْدَ كُلِّ وُضُوءِ That the Prophet ﷺ said, Was it not for the fact that I feared I would burden my ummah, then I would have made it a command that you have to use the siwak every time you make wudu, and in one narration every time you pray. Was it not for the fact that I feared I would ma- it would become a burden on people? I would have made it a command. Use the siwak every time. Every time when you make wudu. Every time before you pray. But of course we know it is not an obligation. It was not made as an obligation. But as a sunnah. Sunnah to use the siwak when you make wudu. Sunnah to use the siwak before the prayer. Sunnah to use the siwak before you start reading the Quran. Sunnah to use siwak in many places when you wake up in the morning. Sunnah to use it whenever you eat and your your taste in the mouth changes. Sunnah to use the siwak. And yes, the scholars do say toothbrush and toothpaste is equivalent to the siwak. You can use that. If a person in the morning uses that with the intention of purification, then inshallah you are getting the same reward as using the siwak. So that is one of the natural things a person does using the siwak. I recall from many, many years ago, when we were in high school, our physics teacher, kafir physics teacher, he, one day we had some siwak, 14, 15 years old at the time. And he recognized it, whatever they call it in English, I don't know. He recognized what it is, what this branch is, what this tree is. And he said, the physics teacher knows about these things, science, etc. He said, the thing that they use in fluoride and toothpaste, this twig you've got with you today, it is one of the types of chemicals they extract from. This siwak. It is something they use as an extraction for making some toothpastes today. He recognized this siwak. So even if that's true or not, if it is true, then it backs up even further the sunnah of using the siwak. But always, always scientific explanations are only supplementary. Even if it backs it up or not. But that's what he said on that day. 
He said the siwak has these certain types of chemicals in it, this particular branch and this particular tree. These things have chemicals which they extract for toothpaste these days. Nevertheless, so number three, the siwak. Number four, istinshaqul ma'a. What is istinshaqul ma'a? Putting the water up the nose. Blowing it out. Putting water into the nose and blowing your nose out. Cleaning your nose out. That is something from the sunnah, something from the natural characteristics of Muslims should be on in purification. It mentions in the hadith, إِذَا اسْتَيْقَضَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلْيَسْتَنْفِرْ ثَلَاثًا فَإِنَّ الشَّيْطَانِ يَبِيتُ عَلَى خَيْشُومَتِهِ That when a person wakes up, you should blow your nose out three times. For indeed, the shaitan sleeps on your nostrils. Mentioned in a narration. So blowing out the nose is something good. It is something from cleanliness. It is something from the sunnah. And that is done within the wudu. And it is to be done in the mornings when you wake up too. Blowing out of the nose and cleaning it whether you're making wudu or not. So that is number four. Number five. Qasul Adafir. Cutting the nails. Cutting the nails. Trimming the nails. This is also from the characteristics of cleanliness. Cutting the nails. So that the dirt and other things don't become stuck behind them. Leaving your nails long. Cutting of the nails is also one of the characteristics of the cleanliness and the purification and the removal of uh, impurities from behind them. So that is number five, the cutting of the nails. Number six, غَصْلُ barajim. غَصْلُ barajim. This is talking about washing out the joints of the fingers. When you eat food, especially with your hands, where does the food become stuck in particular? In between the joints. So to clean out the joints, the knuckles and the joints, all of those areas carefully, that is something mentioned, غَصْلُ barajim, Washing out those joints, the mafasil, the joints and the, the knuckles and those areas where food would typically become stuck within and in between particularly. So that cleaning and washing properly the joints, also mentioned as one of the characteristics of cleanliness. Number seven. Number seven. Netful ib. Plucking the underarm hairs. Plucking the underarm hairs. The armpit hairs. To remove them. To remove the armpit hair. That is also from cleanliness. Here it mentions the method of doing so, which is plucking the underarm hair. Of course, for those whom that may be a difficulty for, and those who struggle just at the thought of it, then uh, it is possible, it is allowed, there is no issue in using other methods, shaving, 
for example, even cutting, whatever the other method may be, to remove the hair from under the armpits, then it is acceptable and correct. But plucking is the most effective, no doubt, more effective than even shaving. And so some of the students at Medina, they used to say, this type of thing, of course at first when you hear about it, it's something that throws you back onto your seat, and you're not able to really think how you could do that. But they used to say, once you do it, once you do it and you get used to it, it's no big deal. Once you do it and you get used to it, it's no big deal. After those first few times of screaming, etc. But nevertheless, even if a person couldn't do it, shaving, cutting, trimming, whatever other method to remove the underarm hair, that is the point. Then also number eight, Halqul'ana, shaving the private area. The private area, the hair should also be removed, should also be shaved from the private area, and this is also from the cleanliness of an individual, to remove that hair from the private area. Number nine, ma, When using the toilet, after finishing, using water to purify yourself. And that means, when a person uses the toilet, is it allowed to use just tissue paper? Jo- huh? Is what, sorry? What are they? But what I'm saying is, is it allowed to miss water on purpose? No. Nowadays, mashallah, here in the West, everybody's got their tissues. The tissue rolls on the thing which rolls on the side and you just pull it and it rolls and rolls. So is the tissue allowed by itself without the water? No. Technically you could say, technically it is because of the stone. Similar to that. However, the point is, you should use water. Even when just urinating, afterwards, not just tissue, you should use water. Even if it be at the minimum that you wet the tissue before using the tissue. Even if it be that you wet the tissue before using the tissue. Some element of water, it increases in the purification. The element of water increases that purification. So you should use water. Even if it be that you wet the tissue at the minimum and then use that wet tissue rather than just dry tissue. So that is also mentioned. The narrator then says, Nasitul Ashir. I forgot the tenth one. That's nine. Nasitul Ashira illa antakuna al madmada. He says, I forgot what the tenth is. Or Asha mentions that I forgot what the tenth is. Uh, unless it was madmada, washing out the mouth, putting water into the mouth and washing out the mouth, unless it was that, she says, I forgot what it was. So the tenth, it could be that, the washing out of the mouth, uh, washing out of uh, the fragments or whatever remains in the mouth from the food, etc. Washing all of that out with the madmada, 
taking the water down to the throat and gargling, then removing that water, that is also from the means of cleanliness. So this hadith there tells you about the ten The next hadith, عن أبي سعيد الخدري رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الماء طهور لا ينجسه شيء. Water is pure and purifying. Nothing can impurify water. This is talking about the default in water. The default. In natural water, whether it is rain water, whether it is stream, river, sea, spring, natural water by default is pure. And it is the default item to use in purification. When we talk about purification, how do you purify something? The default is always water. To purify anything, the default is always to use water. That is the default in purification. So any natural water by default is pure. Stream water, river water, spring water, rain water, all of that by default is pure. So this hadith mentions that water is pure and it purifies. You can use that pure water to purify something else. Rainwater is pure, collect it, wash your clothes in it, remove the purity or the impurity from your clothes. So water is pure and it purifies. And it mentions here, nothing can impurify water. The purpose of this narration when looking at it amongst all of the other narrations in fiqh, refers to this topic of the types of water. The types of water. So now, water by default is pure. 
When would water become classed as impure? When certain characteristics of that water change, there are three characteristics. The smell, the color, and the taste. If the smell or the color or the taste of the water changes, then it is changed. You need to think of this now as a chart. As a chart. So now you have a bowl of water, fresh rainwater collected in this bowl. Something mixes in with it. Something pure. Something pure mixes in with it. Like for example, soap. Or for example, oil. Olive oil, for example, dilutable juice. You pour something into this water. Let's take our dilutable juice, for example. You get a full bottle of Robinson's, and you pour it into this bowl of fresh water you collected as rainwater. What happens to that bowl of water now? The color changes, taste changes, Maybe even smell changes. That now, when somebody comes along and looks at it, what are they going to say it is? Juice. Nobody's going to say that's a bowl of water. They're going to say it's a bowl of juice. Is it therefore permissible to use for wudu? Has it become impure? Juice is impure, that's it, you've had it. Robinson's, all these things, they're impure if you drink, put them in water. So it is still pure. It is still pure, but it's no longer called water. And that's the key. If water changes those characteristics, even with something pure, to the extent that it is no longer possible to term it as water, then it cannot be used for wudu because it is not Water now, it is juice. Or if you put 10 tea bags in there, it now becomes tea. So you can't use that now because it is no longer termed as water, even though it's still pure. Same bowl of water or another bowl of water you've collected from the rain. This time, some urine goes into it. Some urine goes into it. Obviously now when you pour a bottle of urine in there, the color of that water will change. The smell of that water will change. And no doubt, it can be expected that the taste of that water will change. That water now, can it be used? No, because an impurity has gone into it and the impurity has changed its characteristics. One of the three, or all of the three, one or a combination of them. The taste, the color, the smell. So you can't use that water anymore. The the only issue that arises is, imagine now, you have 
a lake, a huge lake, and you go and drop this bottle of urine in there. A huge lake, and you go and pour 500 mil, 330 mil, into that huge lake of urine. Next day, can you come and make wudu from that lake now or not? Why? Has impurity not gone into it? Has. But this impurity that goes into that huge lake, is it going to change the color of the lake? No chance. You go back next day to the same spot, you won't see a thing. Will it change the smell of the lake? No. Taste of the lake? Nothing. That impurity has fallen into it, but it has not been able to change any characteristics of it, hence it remains pure. The only issue that arises is small amounts of water. Now you have this bottle of water, 330 ml. A drop of urine goes in, tiny drop of urine goes in there. Shake it all up. Will there be any change of color? 330 mil with a tiny drop of urine. Well, it won't be. 330 mil. One tiny drop of urine goes in there. A speck of urine. You know impurity has gone in there. But that speck of urine, you shake it all up. 330 mil. Nobody would ever be able to tell there's any change of color, change of smell or taste from that one speck of urine. So is this water pure or not? Technically it's pure. However, this is the one where the scholars differ over. They say because it's such a small amount of water to begin with, small amounts of water you have to be extra careful with in the rulings. Because small amounts of water can easily change their characteristics. When the water is such a small quantity to begin with, even a small speck could have an impact, you never know. So that's the hadith of the qullatain when they talk about it. But the bottom rule with it all is basically that. Water is pure. If something pure goes into it and changes one or several of the characteristics to the extent that the water can no longer be called water, then you can't use it for wudu. If something impure goes into it and changes one of the characteristics or more, then it is impure and you cannot use it. But if the characteristics are not changed, then it is allowed to be used like a huge lake or some other large amount of water, a large body of water that isn't changed by those impurities, it can still be used. That is the basic ruling with regards to water and the types of water. Praise Hapa State. So we'll leave it on that narration there. Next week we begin with the narration, the hadith about cats and dogs. Cats and dogs. What is the ruling on cats? What is the ruling on dogs? And in fact, as a side point, as a digression next time inshallah, we can discuss what types of animals, not just in terms of purity, but what types of animals are allowed to be eaten, and what types of animals are not allowed to be eaten. 
frogs, lizards, elephants, horses. What is allowed to be eaten as a Muslim and what is not? So next week it begins with the hadith about, or next in two weeks time, the hadith about the cats and the dogs and whether they are pure or not. And then as a small digression, we'll mention about the animals and the rulings of eating them. Uh, And then after that, it goes on to some issues of the prayer. Some issues of the prayer after that. So we'll conclude upon that for now then. If there's any quick questions, we could do them. Otherwise, round off there. Hmm. We'll leave it there. Getting late for the prayer. We'll stop there. Carry on in two weeks, inshallah.